Hi, everybody. This is Kevin O'Donoghue, licensed mental health counselor. And this is Nasima Diane Diemer, trauma specialist and licensed massage therapist. And this is The Positive Mind. Where we bring you some ideas, concepts, and guests to help you lead a more positively-minded life. And, you know, when I think of my, my guest, our guest today, you know, I have to think of um, ocean waves. I have to think of ocean waves. I want to give you a sample of what I think about when I think about our guest today. Take a sample, folks. You've earned a break. soothing sounds of the ocean it teaches us something you know the ocean when we go there and when I think of our guest today um, it teaches us that we can reset our soul and our mind and our emotional world and our body and our body just with a simple sound of an ocean or of some other pleasant sound You know, you think your life is full of strife and stress. And if you have a place that you can turn to and tune in, you might just take the steam and the the heat off. Our guest today is Dr. Jennifer Walken. And she's here to talk to us about how to get to this soothing place with her new book, Quick Calm, it's called. It's on Amazon. Quick Calm, Easy Meditations to short-circuit stress using mindfulness and neuroscience. Dr. uh, Walken, welcome to The Positive Mind. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm humbled to be here. Well, so we're so privileged here. We're going to be hearing the ocean waves throughout the show. I'm just going to have to throw them in as the show progresses because we all deserve a break. And we're going to just hang out for this hour talking to Dr. Jen Walken, whose book, Quick Calm, has just come out. Because this is a happy day. We're talking about good things, Jen. Your book is a delight to read. You have like close to, I'd seem, 30 exercises where people can just take five minutes out of their day to practice doing one of these meditations to really get themselves in the moment. Why is mindfulness important? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I did write a book on mindfulness. So, uh, of course I, um, hold it in, in great esteem. So mindfulness is important because it is a way to, I think, um, cultivate our attention in a way that helps us decrease our ruminative, unhelpful thinking that sometimes we call our wandering mind, right? So instead of grasping to the past and dwelling in the shoulda, woulda, coulda questions or the what ifs of the future, we get to hone in on the present. And by doing so, we can help alleviate some of that anxiety, some of that chronic stress that we bear. And so I think it's an extraordinary tool to find both quick calm. And also I think it's an invitation to, to have a long standing relationship with it. Yes. You say, um, 
in the book that re- the mind likes repetition. And so we want to tell people that, look, this tool is great once you've developed it. It takes practice. But can you talk about, like, the mind needing repetition and how this simple exercise once a day or twice, however many times a day you might want to do it, that that is the foundation of the practice of mindfulness? Yeah, of course. I um, I mean, not to get nerdy, to get nerdy, there is a principle called Hebb's Law, and I don't know if anyone here has heard of it, and this is a reductionistic view of, uh, sort of a reductionistic explanation of it, but basically that's the law that says nerves that fire together wire together. And basically that is just demonstrating that if we repeatedly activate the same nerve cells, each time they turn on, it will be easier for them to fire in unison. And so eventually those neurons itself will develop a long-term relationship and and that's how neuroplasticity works, right? Developing new relationships in the brain. And so repetition is really key. I like to say repetition rewires the brain. Consistency, cueing the brain to what it needs, to what we want it to learn, to how we want it to change. So consistent practice is truly, truly the key. Now, I know I'm veering off a little bit. I do wanna say that while repetition and consistency is of the utmost importance, It's my belief that so is compassion for when we can't repeat, for when we don't repeat, because we're human. So we can have consistency and compassion in the same mind space, in my opinion. That's that's the biggest bang for our buck. And there's a meditation in the book called Loving Kindness. And I'm going to ask you to sort of demonstrate that at the end, well, in the second half of the show where you, uh, you use the voice of compassion um, for yourself and for others. Uh, so that's going to be one that we're going uh, to visit. But let's talk about um, the need for mindfulness and, this, and the mental benefits. I think, frankly, that we're all oriented to this negative voice in our head. That, mm. you know, this is the tragedy of our current evolution, that we're all sort of hypnotized by this negative voice in our heads that, you know, we're paying more attention to the darker stuff than the lighter stuff and that we really need to consciously do a practice that's going to take us out of that and possibly into a a more positive, more relaxed frame of mind. Can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, I'm I'm also curious about your practice as a therapist. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I, first and foremost, I think the point is to, and I know, you know, I know that this, this podcast is called positive mind and I respect that and esteem that. And I am all for that. I think first and foremost, it's about finding our accurate mind, right? That mind that's realistic, that mind that's not filtered through unhelpful negative filters that we've developed based on the way we've grown up and some trauma, you know, you know, the trauma we've been through. So for me, it's how can I separate from these negative, unhelpful narratives or stories, we can call them in and have a more accurate understanding of reality. And then we can be more awake to the possibility of joy. I think the the ruminations and the filters of the past tend to be much more dramatic than the accurate 
like what's here and now is kind of boring. <laughs> it's really very ordinary. And I think, and I, you know, I'll, I'll usually cue my clients around. If something is really big and hairy and scary, it's probably not from right here, right now. It's from some other time, <laughs> you know, it's just, you know, reality is much more, you know, plain. It's not, There's not it's a not lot a lot of drama in your everyday. I, I love that so much. I mean, I, I love being here because I'm learning with and from you. I really have never thought of it on that level. And it's so true. And I realize now, actually, in you saying that, when I work with my clients as well, so much of the pain and the grief is from, you know, sometimes it depends what modality I'm using, or from younger, older parts. Yeah. Like right. younger, meaning like younger in age, but older as in like time has Experience. passed since then. Right. Yeah. right. And you also talk about wow. stories, the stories that we tell ourselves in the book. And it, it's a kind of self-hypnosis, the story that we encapsulate yeah. ourselves within as if that is all of it and that's mm -hmm. the real thing. That's mm -hmm. a trap, isn't it? It is a trap. I think as humans, we like to make sense of things though. And we like to contextualize ourselves and place ourselves in relationship to a narrative. And I think what happens is that we start to, to tell these stories, not realizing that so much of the story is generated from, you know, a, a trance, as Tara Brock says, right? right? Mm -hmm. Like you're saying too, this trance, this place that's not really accurate. It's our pain, it's our suffering, it's our trauma response. And so those stories aren't actually touching on you know, our reality, um, our essence, who we are, it's what we tell ourselves. And of course, at some point in our lives, we needed those stories to help us survive. And, and then we outgrow them, right? And those stories are no longer serving us. And mindfulness is a way where we can, I think, separate from the stories by noticing them as non-judgmental witness. We can take that step back and, and decenter, right? There's some, that's some, one of the words in the literature. Um, we can decenter and use this metacognition to just note with gentle awareness what, what stories am I telling? Are they accurate? Are they serving me? And see if, you know, over time we can rewrite them. And I think this is where the word practice comes into play from your book. I know you say practice makes present not perfect it makes present and i love you for quoting that right now you have you to literally do it my day <laughs> yeah no um and it might be a big ask to have people look at their life story and ask them to parse it out and to look at it and be objective about it but when they do some of these mindfulness exercises then I think they can graduate to actually looking at the story that they are in entranced in and do it rather quickly and pull themselves out of it and really experience life, experience the day. So spot on. I think, yes. First of all, to, <laughs> to go back to what you said, I believe practice makes present, practice makes practice, practice makes neuroplastic, right? Just a nod to, to our brain being malleable. Um, there is no perfection. I do believe, like you said, that it's all in the practice, right? When we practice and when it becomes more familiar, 
it is that much easier. We are so much less on autopilot that it becomes that much easier to take note and become aware of the stories that we're telling. On that note, Dr. Jen, we have to play. We It can be so simple, right? Just let the sound in. What does this do for you? What could it do for you if you let it? Yes, the mind tends to the negative, the ruminative. We need tools to bring it back. And one, one way is through sound. And this sound is one that I like. You can find your own. And you can find some of that in Dr. Jen Walken's new book called Quick Calm, Easy Meditations uh, to Short-Circuit Stress Using Mindfulness and Neuroscience. And Dr. Jen, it all starts with the breath, doesn't it? I believe that it does. I think that's the foundation for it all. Can you talk and maybe demonstrate? I know in the book you have what we call you call formal and informal practices. And for some folks, I'll just say the informal is like sweeping your kitchen <laughs> would be bringing mindfulness to that act. That's an informal one. But uh, you do have one in the formal section called diaphragmatic breathing. Um, do you want to just give us the essentials of that but uh, and just demonstrate like the importance of breath, what this yeah, does I in mindfulness? Thanks. Yeah. Well, the breath work is so important because it really helps us maintain that state of awareness that mindfulness is, right? When we're, when we're doing breath work, we're focusing in on the breath. The breath is our object of focus and it's neutral, right? We focus in on the neutral sensation of the inhale and the neutral sensation of the exhale. And then here's where it gets most amazing and profound. We're not always going to focus on our breath, right? It's just impossible to keep focus 100% of the time. Our mind wanders and that's okay. The beauty is when it does wander, can we notice where it goes, whether it goes to a to-do list, whether it goes to a sensation of hunger, et cetera, et cetera. Can we notice where it goes and then gently, gently redirect our attention right back to that breath, right back to the neutral inhale, right back to that neutral exhale. And if needed, we can do that a hundred times in any given moment. And that is still practice. So the practice is yes, to focus and pay attention and also to gently notice where the mind goes and then redirect back to the breath. And one of the reasons that diaphragmatic breathing is so important of course, uh, because of what I just talked about. It's, it's really cultivating that attention and compassion. Also, though, when we breathe through the diaphragm, we allow our body to elicit its own relaxation response, right? We do have one. <laughs> I know we often think of our body as just having a stress response. Really, though, we have um, a relaxation response. We just have to know how to to, to, you know, elicit it. 
And so breathing from the diaphragm is more beneficial than what some of us do, which is breathe from the thoracic level, breathe from the chest. That's right. very shallow breathing. Right. That kind of breathing can lead to hyperventilation. And that's just only going to perpetuate a stress cycle or a fight or flight response. And when, when you we... are under stress, that's the way you're breathing. You're br- exactly. You just, you, diaphragmatic breathing and stress do not go together. <laughs> right? They just can't. The breath will they not can't. go down there. It doesn't, which is why sometimes to regulate, we have to like literally consciously try and regulate our breath. And of course, it's really hard. And also it's a practice. You're right, right. When we're in fight or flight, we're like, we're literally like just taking in all the oxygen that we can, right? And so it doesn't lead leave for a smoother, slower breath. However, we can practice that. And the breath is like these ocean waves I was just playing, right? The ocean wave comes in and the, the surf goes out and the wave comes in and the surf goes out. And this really is, if you're going to learn a practice of meditation, a place to start. Start with, like you say, something neutral, like the breath. Mm-hmm. It's not a, like a, 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 a future problem that I have to handle. You don't want to start meditating with that. You want to start with something that you can do, that you can master even. Uh, this breathing, this breath. Does that make sense? It makes so much sense. And I really like that. Um, that idea of if it feels safe for someone to pair it with the, you know, the ebb and flow of a wave. Yeah. Inhale, exhale, inhale, exhale. Um, I think that that can be a really wonderful practice for someone, again, if it feels safe for them. What's the difference between mindfulness and meditation? Do you ever get asked that question? I do. The way I talk about it, and I'm not an expert in meditation, right? I want to put that out there. I'm, I mean... Uh, what I do is I study and practice mindfulness meditation. And that is all that to say that mindfulness is a type of medication. (laughs) Mindfulness is a type. (laughs) You mean I can buy it over the counter? (laughs) (laughs) That was a good Freudian slip. Mindfulness is truly a type of meditation. There are many different types of meditation and I, I suppose that in the literature, they talk about meditation as one way to, alleviate suffering and there are many different types of meditation towards that goal mindfulness being one of them so i don't know if your listeners maybe have heard of transcendental meditation i don't know a lot about that of course Mm -hmm. i've heard of it it's a very thing to do and Mm -hmm. it can be very beneficial i mean i don't know the difference myself i i just when i meditate i do try to i i'm clearing my mind you know, I'm 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 not doing anything else. What 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 I like about mindfulness is that I'm bringing my awareness to the present moment outside of me, mm. um, without judgment, without any kind of you know mental chatter about it or trying to get there. Uh, am I off base here by saying like meditation is like clearing my mind? I know that's a hard <laughs> thing to do. Not off base. I look at it in a different way, right? So I don't. Even, I don't think there is such a thing as clearing the mind. Okay, I believe that right. our mind is as it is, and mm. I think it's about how we attend to our mind. Um, do we attend to it in a, a gentle way, or do we attend to it in an, a non-gentle way? Um, I think through practice, right, as we do cultivate that ability to hone our focus and sustain our attention, 
it feels like our minds clearing and that's just sort of a misconception because oh, like there's that, a lot yeah. of background stuff and we're honed in we're really honed in however our mind does wander and it's going to wander to any different number of places and when that happens we notice again again with the noticing we just gently notice so i don't know if there's ever clearing the mind there's noticing the mind through a loving lens i think another way to look at it is like a, a kind of slowing of the mind mm. because very often I think when people first sit down that. to like watch their breath, their mind is racing. And yeah. that's often what people say, my mind is racing. And it's like, well, just let's give it a little bit of time to slow down and watching the breath will slow the mind down a bit. We'll slow, we'll take some of the energy out of the busyness of the head and bring it a little bit more into the body where there's a little more space. And I think, and yeah, get you more here to the present moment, because that's also what I see as the benefit of doing, watching your breath is that that's something that's happening right now. I really, really love that. Again, you're <laughs> so on point. And what I love about that too, is when we are using the breath in the way that um, is most adaptive, we're literally slowing the mind, brain and body because on that deep, deep exhale, right? And it has to be longer than the inhale. On that exhale that, that we use to invoke the vagus nerve, which is the 12th, cra 12th cranial nerve, it's the wanders throughout our viscera and um, is really involved in our parasympathetics, right? Our rest and digest. Literally, we're slowing our body by reducing our breath rate. On that exhale, is when our breath rate and heart rate slow down and the brain takes note, right? So it's like the brain helps us slow it down and then the brain takes note that it's slowing down and it's like this biofeedback. It's like this feedback loop that's happening and going on. So literally, right, there's a slowing. And I love that also as, as, a, as metaphor, I think, too. Would you would you describe the breath that you were just talking about? Because I think we skipped over the description of the diaphragmatic breath exercise. Yes, yes, yes. So basically, the breath is um, basically what I'm talking about when I talk about diaphragmatic breathing is breathing through the diaphragm. So filling your diaphragm as if it's a balloon. Let's just describe where the diaphragm is and what it looks like and how it moves. Because I think some people yeah. don't really know. Got it. Yeah. So it's basically under the lungs. You could feel it. It's under the rib cage. And what I like to do to help people notice it is to have them place their hand on their belly. Mm. And so it's not the belly, of course, mm. but it's like in that area. Mm. Okay. <laughs> so that kind of feels good to do that. Actually. Yeah, it does, actually. Yeah. So that's the when I'm first practicing with someone, that's the immediately that's what I do is have them place their hand on their belly. And so when they inhale, they can literally feel themselves filling themselves up with air. And then they can literally on the exhale, feel the deflation of the diaphragm as they bring their diaphragm back towards the spine mm -hmm. and the breath sort of leaves. And it's 
again, the balloon metaphor. So it's inflating and then deflating, inflating and then deflating. And I'll actually sometimes exaggerate a little bit as they're starting to learn pushing their belly out so that they can get a feel of what it's supposed to feel like a felt sense of that and the holding their belly um, and then with time they start to not need to do that and it just sort of happens more naturally but what I want also wanted to make the point that the way I'm trained is that the exhale has to be at least double the inhale for the heart rate to naturally decrease. So if we use the breath rate to manipulate our heart rate, which is okay. for me, like just an extraordinary thing. Like we think of autonomics and we think of our heart rate. We don't think that it's something that we can manipulate. And yet here we are and we can. And the way to use the breath rate to help reduce our heart rate is to make sure that we're exhaling a little bit longer, I like to say double, than the inhale. So if you breathe in four. Yep, you exhale eight. And I have a rectangle breathing exercise in the book. I wanted to give one that was more general, and then I have a rectangle breathing exercise which actually goes through that. So it's almost like people talk about square breathing, four, 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 four. I don't love that because I, again, I love to maximize that vagus nerve, you know, input. And the way we do that is to make sure that the exhale is longer than the inhale. So it's inhale four, hold four, and then exhale eight. And then that pause, yes, right? Pause, beautiful pause for eight. And that brings to mind the earth's breathing mm. when the water flows in. To the surf and then flows out and flows into the surf and flows out just like this And just like that, we can reset our own chemistry, our own heart rate, as Dr. Jen Walken is telling us. And that is in her book, Quick Calm, Easy Meditations to Short-Circuit Stress Using Mindfulness and Neuroscience. Uh, we have a lot to discuss. We have a few minutes before our break, Jen. Can you tell us about... Um, the physical benefits of mindfulness? I'm so glad you asked that question. There are so many benefits to mindfulness, ranging from, like we talked about, right? Decreasing heart rate. So then there's a natural decrease in blood pressure. There's also a decrease in chronic pain as we practice. Also an increase in immune function, decreased anxiety, decreased stress, and a whole host of other benefits, including uh, it helps us uh, sleep better. It helps us um, 
I think. Wake up better. (laughs) (laughs) It helps us go to sleep better and helps us awake um, with a, with a disposition that can help us um, really find more joy in a, in a day. And I'm, I'm just hearing you. And I think, you know, the word that coming that's coming to me is practice. I think these are nice exercises that are inviting you to practice this and that one day it'll just click and it'll be there. I'm just to give people a sense, uh, you know, there's, you can do mindfulness in the shower. You can do mindfulness washing your dishes, which is one I really want to learn. I'm going to ask you to demonstrate that one. Uh, You can do it when you're reading. You can do it when you're walking, when you're, I don't know. Is there anything you can't do it in? Well, I kind of feel it's like if you can, if you can bring in awareness to your breath while doing anything, that becomes a mindfulness practice. Okay. So we're going to come back with some demonstrations of these and more talk with Dr. Jennifer Walken, author of Quick Calm, Easy Meditations to Short Circuit Stress Using Mindfulness and Neuroscience. I'm Kevin O'Donoghue, licensed mental health counselor. I'm Nasima Diane Deemer, trauma specialist and licensed massage therapist. And you're listening to The Positive Mind. We'll be right back. I'm Kev O'Donoghue. And I'm Nasima Diane Deemer. And we're here with Dr. Jen Walkin, W-O-L-K-I-N. And her book <laughs> is Quick, Calm, Easy Meditations to Short-Circuit Stress Using Mindfulness and Neuroscience. And it is stressful being a host. Just to say. <laughs> it certainly can be. Jen, I wanted to ask, what does it mean to be a neuropsychologist? Because I don't think a lot of people out there know about this field and what it's up to. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good question that I'm not often asked, actually. Um, It's really honing in on the biological basis of behavior and understanding the the, uh, brain functioning as it relates to how we behave. And so how that translates to actual work on an everyday basis is I assess, do assessments for um, cognitive functioning including um, language, memory, um, executive functions, attention, right, regulation. And I often come up with a profile of someone's cognitive strengths and someone's cognitive not so strengths. I don't like to say weaknesses because what is a weakness, right? We all have different a different brain. We're all rewi- we're all wired in a different way. There's no better or worse. There's just different. And I think I like to put the psychology back into neuropsychology by um, really focusing on people's strengths and really focusing on 
um, the way that um, those strengths can work for you in any given environment. And also, you know, we're holistic beings. Our cognitive functioning is one aspect of who we are. And so I feel like I have that vantage point of not only understanding someone from a psychosocial perspective, but truly from this cognitive level. And, you know, our cognitive functioning can impact our relationship to self and others too. And so I feel like, again, this gives me that extra perspective on people. We like, they- yeah, we, we <laughs> in positive psychology have um, yeah. mm-hmm. 24 strengths that we often turn exactly. people towards an accent and highlight because they're often so focused on what's wrong and what's negative and, and weak. And we say, well, you know, you have been coming and you've been persistent and you've been on time and you've been courageous and you've been, and where else in, that in your life are those things and totally turns things around for them. Which is why I'm so happy to be here. I feel very aligned with what you do, which is why I know I know it took a while with scheduling and this and that. I really, truly am uh, someone who advocates for positive psychology. If you can believe it, and I bet you could, in my PhD program, there was maybe two hours of training in positive psychology. I mean, the rest was, you know, pathology focused. Yeah, and right. it wasn't until after my training that I really developed this sort of other perspective where hey why why are we pathologizing let's radically non-pathologize and focus on people's strengths how about that and it works it works it works um i like what you say how the human capacity for well-being it seems like we're all stressed you know Mm -hmm. no matter how much we have more and more of that we're probably the most stressed species right now than we've ever been Mm. and yet we also have the capacity for well-being. Mm. Is it stress that's making us sick? Mm. And is it mindfulness that can restore us to well-being? That's such a beautiful, profound question, right? Because it's so simple and yet so complex at the same time. I think it's chronic stress, not stress, right? I think stress is adaptive. Stress is a, is an, a gift, right? We're, we need it to survive, right? Fight or flight, our stress response literally helps us live. And way back when, without fight or flight, we're at, we were at risk of being eaten by saber-toothed tigers, right? We all give that same example, the saber-toothed tiger, right? But in that scenario, we'd sense a threat, you know, the tiger, and then we'd immediately realize we have to fight or flee and to do so, right? Our fear center of their brain reacts, which is the amygdala. And then our body releases hormones, including adrenaline, including cortisol. And then these hormones are necessary to increase our heart rate, dilate our pupils, increase glucose in the bloodstream. And we need that. Otherwise, we wouldn't survive. Here's the key, though. The absolute key to the fight or flight response working as it was intended to is that when an acute threat is gone, the brain and body return to functioning as usual. And unfortunately, even without saber-toothed tigers, in the modern world, it doesn't take a lot to stress our system, right? Even you just said, like, being a host, right? Yes, right. <laughs> it is stressful. And, like, of course, maybe that's you stressed. It's something, E-U-S-T-R-E-S-S. That's something that you you enjoy. It's also still yes. a burden on the system, right? It doesn't right. take a lot to right. stress. But us. I also feel it as a strengthener. It's also strengthening yeah. me, you know? 
Right. No, a hundred percent. It's also a coping skill at the same time. I feel like it's like, exactly. it's, yeah. yeah. Um, but I think that's the key. I, I, I think, you know, we're overworked. We worry about finances and we juggle responsibilities. I don't know. Let's put a global pandemic into the mix, um, you know, political unrest and, you know, threats are constantly there. And so we're, our body and mind and brain are on high alert way more than we were built to handle. And that that's, I think, the key here. That stress is actually really adaptive. So many people come into my office saying, I want stress elimination. And then I look at them and I say, I don't know if that's, I don't know if you really do. Yeah, you need to go talk to another what, planet. Right, let's talk about what stress <laughs> is and the adaptive side. So we don't eliminate stress, we reduce stress. We help people um, adapt in ways that their stress doesn't build up to this chronic you know, capacity that um, we know how to um, you know, go back to baseline, so to speak. Right. And we also need to sort of shift where that, because in chronic stress, your baseline is going up and up and up and up. Exactly. And you think you're coming back to a baseline, but you're just like kind of a little bit there. <laughs> and it's like to feel safe to come all the way back down. That's where you need a practice daily to just let things exactly. stop and go quiet and slow down. And these are these are five minute exercises. I want to say in the yes. book, right? So yeah. it's not like you have to make a whole big deal an amount of time to do this. But since we're on this topic of stress, how about the emotions that come out of stress? Right, irritability and anger. Oh yeah, fear, terror, all sorts of things. Can you talk? Is there a practice to handle those emotions? Is mindfulness part of uh, focusing on the emotions, emotions as well? Yeah, you know, hmm. when I think when I think of that, it makes me think of the and I don't know if this is a good place to talk about it, but I will. And you, you, you go right ahead. I think you're on it. I want to. Okay, yeah. yeah. I think in any given moment we can react, right, right, from a place of fear and and anger and irritability, or we can respond more mindfully. Right? And reactive is the more reflexive, impulsive way to behave. Then that comes from right being in this irritable space when chronic stress builds up and up. And then when we're in this state, it's hard to regulate emotions. Our frontal lobes, which is uh, the front part of the brain, which is responsible for more of our higher order thinking, that goes offline. And so literally we're in our limbic brain and it's hard to regulate and it's so much easier when it's hard to regulate to just engage in fear-based behaviors and lash out and then also to, you know, to ruminate and spiral. And so I think mindfulness helps us to approach any given situation in a more responsive rather than reactive way. And, you know, I'm biased towards the pause, right? Um, Viktor Frankl said, between stimulus and response, there is a space in that space is our power to choose our response in our response lies our growth and our freedom. I think that was it. Basically nodding to the pause that we need to take and the way we get to that pause is practice. But if you'll notice, and this is something that like blew my mind, even when we're practicing practicing more formally, right? Even when they're, we're on the cushion, we haven't necessarily taken this practice off the cushion right. yet into no. our lives. 
when I mentioned the diaphragmatic breathing, I don't know if any, if the listeners noticed, but it was inhale, hold, exhale, pause. Right. And that pause is literally priming us to take that step back, to take the step back so that instead of reacting, we can then respond. So it's sort of like, yes, we do it in breath work to give our body and mind space to come back to homeostasis, which is a balance. And two, metaphorically, we use that pause off the cushion as a way to take reflective time instead of reflexively reacting. That's beautiful. And I and I just wanted to tie this back to the beginning of our conversation when we talked about how to, if you if you give yourself that pause, you give yourself an opportunity to come into the mm-hmm. present moment where things are less dramatic. And you can see them a little bit clearer. You have mm-hmm. a little more space. And yes, you can you can really make a choice. Then you have a choice. And as I'm listening to both of you, I'm sorry if I'm interrupting there, but because I I just I need my ocean fix. And as I'm li- <laughs> as I'm listening to both of you, I'm, se- <laughs> I'm seeing like as my emotions arise, and you know my irritability or anger or something gets a little more intense. I now have this tool that I can turn to, which is the sound of the ocean. Now, okay, so this is part of mindfulness, and when we come back from this little experience, I'm going to ask you about grounding. And so I know we're talking about the ocean here, but that was grounding. I find that very grounding. And in your in your book, you in the in the formal practices, you have a grounding practice. And you start with sound, right? I mean, you can use sounds. Look at all the what are the five sounds or how does it start? Why don't you walk us through this? <laughs> sorry. Yeah. No, not sorry. Basically, a grounding practice helps us lean into our five senses and that's one of the ways to connect back to the present moment, right? Because when we're not grounded in their present experience, right, we're distracted, right? That's basically it. And the exercise helps us focus on our external environment using sensory experience. So, you know, basically it's a five, four, three, two, one countdown. You would, um, of course, I always like to incorporate the breath in the practice. So I do. And then, um, as you find the exhale and then the pause, then lead in, lead yourself into this grounding experience, right? So first I say to someone to um, tell me five things that they see and they can describe it in as much detail as they can and say it out loud if, if, that, if that works. And then four things they can hear and three things that they can feel, um, two things that they could smell and one thing that they can taste. And sometimes I'll have someone just put a second candy in their mouth and that helps also. Um, And again, basically the idea is to come back into the senses 
you know, noticing the environment around you and really bringing yourself into the present that way. I don't know if any of you have tried it, but I've tried it during, I've had panic attacks in my life and I've tried it and it's, it really works, I have to say. And I then you, so. can re- you can repeat it. Right. And it's a joy to highlight the senses. I mean, it's a oh, joy okay. to slow down yeah. enough. Yeah. Slow down enough to really feel the yeah. joys of taste and the joys of sound. Yeah. And I do want to say, though, right, like I just feel like it's incumbent upon me to say is that, you know, some people have challenges with different senses. So do what you can. Yeah. And leave the rest. If you have trouble with sight, do the sounds. If you have trouble with both, do the smell. Do what we, what you can, what resonates, and whatever feel feels right to you. And if this exercise doesn't appeal to you, go to the next one. Right. And uh, what I love about bringing this and the breath exercise is that sometimes the breathing is a little too scary. And sometimes registering your environment is a little too scary. So one or the other can help you come into the moment like some people are really good at feeling the moment through their bodies and some need to do it through the environment it is again uh, an interaction with the environment to tune into your senses but it's it's can be a little bit easier i'm really glad you said that and um i love that you said that because i know you're a trauma therapist and trauma informed and that is something that i want to get across so my book isn't necessarily speaking to trauma recovery Right? It's speaking to chronic stress and stress reduction and anxiety reduction. However, there is a burgeoning field of literature that mindfulness can be used with trauma. However, it has to feel safe. If it doesn't feel safe, it's only going to feel re-triggering. So when are, what do you mean? When, what are some examples of when your thinking can, or your breathing can cre- create stress? Or Well, I mean... In, in trauma, I mean, sometimes feeling into the body itself is way too dangerous I or see. too scary. Okay. And sometimes breath can can be triggering. It, it can. And if you find that, if you find that you're moving into any exercise, you can always stop and find another one that feels safe, like Jen said. You know, it's like, so sometimes you need to sort of locate yourself outside before you can locate yourself inside or vice versa as you're talking i could see like a lot of people who've experienced trauma would be breathing let's say into their chest but not Mm -hmm. into their diaphragm and so to actually do a practice of diaphragmatic breathing could be stressful i could see that it could be yeah it could be triggering i'm so glad that we talk that we're talking about this yeah And it's not one size fits all. Not at all. And so it's wonderful. You have so many exercises in this book. And, and just like maybe even to highlight something like how to bring mindfulness to washing dishes. Thank you. (laughs) I was going to ask that, but you did it for me. Instead of using the breath, right, as the focal point, and although I do incorporate the breath, right, like I always like to start with the breath again, if that feels safe. But with something like a mindful dishwashing exercise, basically we want to just hone in on every experience as it unfolds in the moment. Just the way we focus on the breath, I want now someone to focus in on how does it feel to open the water? What does it feel like to hold the sponge? What does it feel like before the sponge is wet? What does it feel like after the sponge is wet? Um, What does it feel like to take the sponge and go in circular motions on a dish? And in any given moment of time, if your mind wanders, just like with the breath exercise, notice where it wanders 
and then bring your attention back to where you were. And that, that might've been the sponge, that might've been the temperature of the water, that might've been looking at the crud on the dishes, <laughs> whatever it is, right? Just noticing it. So it's, it's really just maintaining this focus on exactly what you're doing and then redirecting your attention when your mind wanders away from that. And the beauty is that when we're not on autopilot, with things that seem mundane, we can actually savor and find joy in them. I, for example, like to cook. And for me, I use cooking as a mindfulness practice and it is just so extraordinary, I can't tell you. So literally, I guess what I wanted to do in this book is give enough varied practices that anyone could choose, you know, one that works for them. and. It doesn't only have to be a practice that you do while you're sitting someplace dark and quiet because, hey, that might not be possible. Literally, you can practice doing something that you would do anyway. Uh, I'm going to speak for the guys out there because when I wash dishes, I immediately become frenetic. I mean, I, I have to do it as fast as possible. It's the one activity that, you know, it's just somehow it's irritating it just bothers me that i have to wash my dishes and if there's a full sink of dishes i can get so worked up right and what i'm wanted our guys who are listening to take away from this is that okay feeling the texture of the sponge it might not turn you on guys it might not slow you down but if you practice this if you do it it will have it will show up in other places that's what i love about your book that the mindfulness practices, you know, yes, they slow us down in some in some places where we wouldn't normally slow down. But if we do the practices, that they will show up in other places. I love that. That's really, I think, if that's what you took from my book, then I've done the job that I that I wanted to. The idea is to take. To, the idea is that our practice becomes a way of life. That. Yeah you know, we practice enough that we can start to live more mindfully and really just be mindful of the way we show up in relationships to self in relationship to other. Are we experiencing gratitude? Are we practicing gratitude? Are we, you know, empathic? Are we compassionate to others, et cetera, et cetera. The list goes on. I, I, I heard you say the word savoring and that is one of the positive psychology strengths, being able to savor. And I just love that word because it's like maybe that's another sort of way to say mindfulness because it seems like it is a quality of savoring every moment, every texture, every sensual experience in each moment and savoring it or savoring your connection with your beloved or your child or your pet or yeah. your work or whatever it is you're doing to give it some time give it mm. your attention savor it to, you know get into the details yeah. of it in a in a really you know compassionate and curious way i would say i love that i think that's where it pays off i didn't put those two together but now that you're saying i think the practice does help you savor let's say you taste a glass of wine that's really really good with mindfulness, you take this mindfulness practice you've had, and okay, now it's, I'm tasting and I'm savoring and I'm extending the time that I'm enjoying this. Yeah. And I think from what I do take away from the book is, yes, the practice of it does show up in other places of my life um, automatically without thinking about it. And that 
it is a kind of savoring that happens. So thanks for that, Jen. No, thank you. I'm just so grateful to be here in, in conversation with you. We have about four minutes. I want to talk about loving kindness because it's a very mm-hmm. popular Buddhist meditation, but you talk yeah. about it in a different way. Can you talk about loving kindness as a mindfulness practice? Yeah, I mean, I I just think that whenever we're outside of ourselves and being able to offer up compassion and kindness towards others and to the collective, it's an, another way to practice um, being present that I think gets us outside of our own self. At the same time, we also practice offering ourselves compassion. So it's sort of this like one, two, <laughs> one, two hit. Um, but I think it's very important. I think it's important to understand us in relation to, to others and us in relation to the world at large And I think that practicing something like this can help us get away from those ruminative stories. You you start by mindfulness meditation with pick somebody that you're having trouble with. This is getting away from some of the science of it and more into the soul of it, which is totally okay with me. Right? We want to. I think that just adds this layer, which where um, we're practicing. we're practicing offering kindness in towards someone that we might not think to do so otherwise. If you can do this practice with somebody that, you know, who is an adversary, then you'll be able to do it with so many of the other things in this book. And again, I just want to reiterate that that doesn't mean pick someone who is, you know, who triggers you or you feel traumatized, just, you know, Someone who uh, the relationship is a little fraught. Right. Your children. (laughs) 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 Start from the one who irritates you the least. Your children. Okay. Very good answer. Someone else's children. Uh, There's so much more to talk about in this book. Quick, calm, easy meditations to short circuit stress using mindfulness and neuroscience. The uh, woman who wrote the foreword of your book is an athlete. Yes. And maybe just bring in a little bit about how athletes are finding benefit from this. <laughs> well, you'll, uh, you'll a, have to ask her. She, she, but she, I think it's a great question. It's a great basically, question. performance, you can't, you can't train your body without training the mind. That's the one-off. That's my answer on one foot. You'll have to ask Tiana. She's an extraordinary human. She's an Olympic gold medalist. And if you if you want your body to excel, you bet you have to tame your mind. Exactly. Okay. Well, we'll have to leave it there. Dr. Jennifer Walken has written a book, Quick Calm, Easy Meditations, and they are easy, folks. Easy meditations to short circuit stress using mindfulness and neuroscience. I want to thank you for being here, Dr. Walken. Thank you so much. Such a pleasure. Again, you can call me Jen and hope we can uh, talk again another time. Me too. So we would like to thank our affiliates for airing us, WBDY, WRWK, KAOS, KFOI, KPEJ, KXCR, KYGT, The Detour, Global Community Radio, WOOL. 
you can also find us on most podcast platforms, The Positive Mind. We'd like to thank our producer, Connie Shannon, our chief engineer, Jeff Brady. You can contact us at tffpp.org with questions, comments, or suggestions for the show. See you next time, folks. Bye-bye.